Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about paying it forward. This episode has intentionally been timed to release right around the time of September 26th, which this year is World Contraception Day. In fact, that has been World Contraception Day for many years. It may be a setting, a standard 926 kind of thing for every single year. The problem is that for the past three or four years, I've had this topic on my mind placed into the schedule for this particular week of recording, and I just haven't been able to get there. And that was a genuine risk for this year as well. And I was wondering if the different drummer I wanted to talk about and the angle I wanted to take on this topic was going to push me off yet another year for another really good reason. So let me uh, do a few things introducing this. But before I get to the topic, I kind of want to do some house cleaning. First off, for anyone who's new to Inappropriate Conversations, who may have heard me for the first time just last month, or with the podcast released earlier this month on intersections in the neighborhood, whether that be through Pride 48 and the event in New Orleans this year, or from some other means, I'll offer you a very big welcome. I think the uh, idea and the approach that I used in Inappropriate Conversations 212 is a pretty good example, and this won't stray too far from it, although I'm back to a single speaker audio blog format. Normally, the thing that has interfered uh, three years ago, perhaps, with me putting out uh, a show on this topic of paying it forward in late September was the desire to do a recap show from the last time that I was at a Pride 48 Live Expo event. That was in 2015, and Walk the Earth was performed from the stage then. This year it was Inappropriate Conversations. And coming back from that, I got the sense that a lot of other shows that are featured at Pride48.com do a recap show of the experience of going to the live event. Decided I wanted to do the same thing, and it was an easy thing for me to decide to do, because even before, a couple of years before I'd made that first trip, I'd recorded a podcast called Proud to Know You, and it just seemed easy for me to record Proud to Know You too, that I'd finally achieved that goal of attending, and uh, the surprise, at least for me, of doing a podcast live. I could easily see a Proud to Know You 3 sitting right in this spot. But what I decided to do a week or two ago was to intentionally hold that off and make it an October topic, and instead put in front of it this one, where I've had a different drummer literally waiting for years to be discussed. So that's the way I'm kind of going to handle it. And I felt really good listening to the most recent episode of the Greetings from Nowhere podcast. Not a surprise that I've been listening to that. I talk, I've talked about that podcast for years now. And Nicole Villacrez from Greetings from Nowhere joined me on the stage in the last show, which was the first inappropriate conversations ever to feature two live speakers, same place, same time. And they've also made that same decision for a variety of reasons to go ahead and put out what you might call a regular show and then come back to it probably in October with their look back to the New Orleans event this year. A few other house cleaning things right up front just because I'm talking about it. The Inappropriate Conversations podcast is found at inappropriateconversations.org. 
If you went to inappropriateconversations.com, it would just redirect you. The .org is the website that I've had for, well, ever since I had a domain of my own. Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations, both podcasts share that feed. So that is the one-stop shop for everything. Also on Twitter, I'm at IC underscore Greg, and I post things about both of those podcasts and interact on a variety of topics there. From a Facebook perspective, there is a divergence. And really, Facebook is where I want to start talking about what I would call other introductory topics. Walk the Earth has a Facebook page. Uh, Inappropriate Conversations has a Facebook page listed as a cause. And I also have a personal Facebook page. And as I've mentioned a couple of times during the course of this year, my approach with Facebook is relatively simple. Uh, If I know you, um, and that can be virtually knowing you, I almost never turn down a friend request. In fact, I don't believe I ever have from somebody that I actually know, either uh, directly or from my past or online virtually. I will decline and sort of block the sort of spam kind of friend requests you get. But I also never unfriend people. And what that means is that from time to time, I'll be engaged in conversation with folks where there's always a risk. The point of view of somebody who's challenging me on an idea, even on my personal Facebook page, could be uh, upsetting, harmful even, to someone who has uh, dealt with that situation from a completely different angle. So I try to be very forthright, blunt, direct, uh, even arguably harsh with folks who come to me in social media with uh, homophobia or bigotry driving their action or uh, just not making any sense. I, I My attitude is my page, my rules. I don't go to other people's Facebook page generally and challenge the things that they've said there that are wrong. I will from time to time offer a fact check uh, to correct people who've got participating in the sort of the uh, the hoaxes that have been a negative part and had really negative impacts on American life in the last two or three years. But even then, I don't go looking for it. I just kind of wait till I have no choice but to offer a friend the help of a gentle but direct corrective word. But if you hit my page and you offer what might be perceived as a similar gentle correcting word that's full of lies, nonsense, and a half-hearted, perhaps even dishonest approach, I tend to be, again, very direct. Now, I don't think anybody who's ever looked at the way I interact with people online would say that I'm some sort of troll or that I have uh, I pick a fight and I don't fight fair or whatever. Uh, I tend not to berate people. I stay away from ad hominem attacks. But anymore, we're living in a society where calling someone else out on their nonsense can be perceived as some unforgivable provocation. And that's kind of where I want to start. Because I've got a point of view about the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation process that's going on right now. And I'll only give just a little bit of reference for anybody who's living in the moment right now in late September of 2018. You probably don't need any background. But the beauty of a podcast is people can step across this years and years later. And sometimes the persons that you might be referring to as being really relevant in the moment from a current events perspective won't make any sense in the future. This is part of the reason why I don't view inappropriate conversations As a news kind of thing, I tend to be very careful about how I deal with current events, more of a cause, in other words, because I would like the shows to at least have some sort of relevance in the moment that still kind of isn't terribly confusing a year later or even years later. Brett Kavanaugh is the current nominee for 
the U.S. Supreme Court from President Donald Trump. He has been put forward to replace Justice Anthony Kennedy, who retired after the term in the summer of 2018. The Kavanaugh appointment, the nomination, was a big surprise for almost everybody on all corners of the political spectrum. Uh, Republicans in uh, Congress and the Senate in particular were very direct with the president saying, this is not the world's greatest choice if you're looking for an easy confirmation. They apparently have a lot more access to information than they've allowed the U.S. public to have or even many of their fellow senators to have. But whatever it is they know that they have made sure so far hasn't been shared publicly led them to believe that even if you only provided a scintilla of this guy's background from a paper trail perspective, it's going to be a very difficult candidate to confirm. The popular wisdom, and I put that in quotation marks, of course, is that the selection of Kavanaugh, which wasn't originally on any sort of short list that Trump was was dealing with, had a lot less to do with his point of view about sort of the uh, you know the social issues that conservatives in America today get so obsessed about, and maybe more about Kavanaugh's perspective that a sitting president should be completely immune from any sort of consequences of his actions, either during the presidency or before, and that the nomination is pretty much a craven move by Trump to try to protect himself from the consequences of the Mueller investigation or any other lawsuits and or criminal proceedings that could come his way. And that only made the nomination that much more controversial. What has happened since then, as often does when somebody who gets thrust into the public limelight, is that there are people who have had negative encounters and experiences with that individual, this uh, suddenly in their 15 minutes of fame kind of an individual, where they might have been able to ignore or suppress or try to forget the negative encounters they've had in the past with this person, but it's a little bit hard to persist in that sort of willful denial, that sort of circling the wagons, protect myself against my past, my memories, or this person. But you can't really do that when this person's about to become one of the justices in the Supreme Court. And I'm quite sure that in this situation, Christine Blase Ford, a professor who knew Kavanaugh when they were both young, I had encountered him in a very negative situation that is being perhaps accurately described as as attempted rape, has come forward with the allegations. On that front, I have no real problem understanding why she waited so long. The way I've heard it described and the way I think is probably the best explanation for why now is not the political expediency argument that's being put forward from the right side of the political spectrum. It is more the argument from the center of the political spectrum that says, that you may spend a lot of time in your life deciding not to take action because your number one priority is protecting yourself and your family, and then come to a point like this, a moment like this in history, where you realize that the really protecting yourself and your family might put a lot more people in a lot more danger if a person with the alleged character flaws that Kavanaugh has is moved forward. My argument about this has not really focused so much on that. I've peddled very lightly on the podcast. I've ignored the issue from a podcast perspective. Although I've been very active in social media, questioning what all the secrecy is about and why we wouldn't share all the documents from this nominee the way we have past nominees. Or even now, with this, um, the allegations raised by Dr. Ford, why wouldn't we handle these allegations exactly the same way we handled the allegations in 1991 that Anita Hill raised uh, about Clarence Thomas? 
that I dismiss as frankly idiotic arguments that the fact that she was forced to come forward means that her story can't be trusted. Um, that doesn't make any sense. Or the fact that it's been so many years ago means that her story can't be trusted. And the fact that some have even gone so far as to say, well, the statute of limitations has run out, which is patently false. Apparently in the state of Maryland, attempted rape does not have a limitation on when that crime can be in investigated and prosecuted. And you see this sense of desperation coming from people who want to sort of divide and conquer here and move past or leap over this issue. But there's a big reason why that's going to be really hard for them to do. And it's why I wanted to bring this up in the context of my presence and my interactions on social media. You see, I'm not an easy person to hunt down from an inappropriate conversations perspective because I have tried, not perfectly, but reasonably well, to keep some separation between my personal life and my family and either one of these two podcasts. That's really hard to do with Walk the Earth because Walk the Earth has a lot to do with my family leaving one church and seeking a new church home, even a new denomination. You kind of have to talk about that process from the perspective of not just my experience, but my family's experience as well. But to the degree possible, I've made an effort to keep them separated. Most of the posts that I put online as myself are friends only for that reason, trying to essentially kind of lock things down. And for that reason, what I'm going to refer to is probably not readily available to a general search. But if you know me online, or if you know a friend of mine online, you might be able to track this down. Uh, in any event, I'll mention the, the site that I quoted, because the the Facebook page that I quoted, I think, still has this exactly right. This was um, September 19th, give or take, or maybe September 18th, that a thousand words graphic arts posted this meme. Someone has already posted Christine Blasey Ford's address home phone, and cell phone. She has been attacked all over social media. People are saying crude, sexist, and demeaning things about her. And men still wonder why women are scared to come forward? All I added to this was a simple statement that I was looking for and had yet to see. Christians, especially politically conservative Christians, denounce the abuse that this doctor is getting. This thing developed and evolved from there. She had to essentially leave her home and go into hiding and try to figure out whether she was actually physically safe to testify. If she was receiving threats, whether death threats or even threats of other forms of physical violence, you actually tend to see a lot of rape threats in this sort of alt-right approach to, to doxing and trashing people. Clearly, it puts her in a situation of having to wonder whether or not her testimony is going to be something she's willing to do. And yet then the same right-wing people who have yet to denounce the violence directed toward her are using her desire for uh, some assurances and some protections, perhaps even some FBI involvement is somehow also some kind of an indication that she is, uh, that she can't be trusted. I struck out about this. I wrote that post and just let it be. It was one of many posts that I've shared on the issue, but this was the one of all of them that I think directly addressed the heart of what I was dealing with. Where is my heart in this situation? And that's that I don't believe if somebody walks into a crowded movie theater and yells fire, that their free speech is protected from the consequences of the harm done if a panic ensues. I also don't believe that you have your, your First Amendment right to free speech protected if what you're doing is posting an address online and telling people to go and you know what to do. That kind of menacing talk. 
I was going to save this for the last word, but I think it's probably the right time now to refer to a tweet put up by Shannon Coulter. This was even before the post that I'm talking about, at least a day before, where she said this. Folks who ask, why didn't she bring it up earlier, aren't really asking. They know Roy Moore's accuser, Tina Johnson, had her house burned down when she, quote, brought it up, unquote. They know that Weinstein blacklisted women who brought it up. It's a question aimed at preserving the status quo. So what if I have people in my circles of friends and family who are in that, well, why is she bringing it up now camp? And I certainly got some pushback from folks along those lines. How do I handle it online when I get pushback that I don't think makes sense? I believe that life is an essay test and that we're obliged to give essay answers. And if somebody says something that doesn't make sense, I do everything in my power. Frankly, as somebody who cares about other people, including caring about the person who was you know, telling me that I was stupid or wrong, I feel like it's important to give them the essay answer, to provide them with the detail. In this case, this individual, having read that meme and reacting to it, came along later and for whatever reason had this just alarming thing to say in terms of his the legitimacy of his confusion over my post. He basically said, okay, we're not talking about the same thing. I realize now I thought you were talking about sexual abuse in general and you were talking about the specific abuse directed at Ford. I just don't think you defined that very well in the beginning. Really? You don't think I defined that very well in the beginning? By sharing a meme where the entire meme is about the abuse of Ford. Someone has already posted her address, phone number, and cell phone. She's been attacked all over social media. People saying crude and sexist and demeaning things about her. And he didn't think that was about the doxing attack on her. And my only real add to it was to say, I've yet to see politically conservative Christians denounce this abuse. He turned abuse into assault and began talking about false charges and had all the typical right-wing nonsense about how often false charges are raised versus how often real charges are ignored. Someone else came in to jump to his defense and said, please do not respond to this statement. I'm just saying that the vehemence with which you pick apart other people's arguments makes me think that you don't want to engage with people after all. So John from Secretly Timid has chimed in. The reason I'm actually bringing this up, because it is relevant, in my opinion, to the greater Pride 48 community. How the hell is someone going to make a comment like that and say, please don't respond? Keep doing what you're doing, Greg. Well, this is my way of saying, first off, thanks, John. And yes, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. But no, at least at the time of this recording, I have no intention of adding any more replies to this particular strand. I feel I defended my point of view well, that it's still my wall, my rules. And I think if anybody were to revisit this, I think it would be really obvious to them that the people who were trying to correct me, they just don't come out all that well when you read it. There's clearly a lack of basic reading comprehension going on an accusation that communication wasn't clear when clearly it was, and a not terribly firm grasp of the facts or of the law. And along the way, in the midst of that exchange, I was really honest to say, hey, I'm not a lawyer, and I know that neither one of the people I was interacting with are lawyers. And one of the things you encounter with this is a whole bunch of people who suddenly become experts overnight. They either become experts in world history or international politics or the law when they know they're not. I guess from a Kavanaugh perspective, the reason I even bring this up is embedded inside that answer. 
I provided what I thought was really constructive criticism, not just to friends and family members and loved ones, anybody who might encounter the posts, but to Kavanaugh himself. How should this have been handled? What do I expect to see from somebody who is serious about becoming a justice sitting on the United States Supreme Court? Here's what I expect to see. The first, loudest, and most insistent voice demanding that this group of alt-right trolls stop targeting and harassing Ford should have been Brett Kavanaugh himself. At the very least, it should have been people from his camp, perhaps someone who's got an emotional maturity level that's much greater than the current sitting president, speaking on behalf of the president, even despite the president's worst instincts, and saying it that way, to essentially saying, hey, you've got this perception, you group of trolls, that you are somehow defending me, Brett Kavanaugh, and my nomination, by engaging in this kind of online harassment and threats of violence. You are not protecting me by doing so. You are making a mistake. Your behavior is inappropriate. I'm seeking a role, a permanent lifetime role, on the Supreme Court of the United States of America as a judge representing all American citizens, defending the Constitution. Your behavior is clearly unconstitutional. It violates the fire in a movie theater standard, and it must stop. Because even if I've got a lot of animosity in my own mind toward Dr. Ford, the bottom line is I'm seeking a position where I need to be a citizen above suspicion, where I can't be engaged openly in conflicts of interest. I can't be committing perjury before the U.S. Senate. And I certainly can do the easiest thing of all, which is to say all American citizens should be protected from this kind of violence, including somebody who you might think would be my enemy. Jesus of Nazareth, for those who claim to be Christians, taught that we are supposed to have exactly that sort of attitude, orientation, and love toward enemies. It raises serious questions about Kavanaugh's character, that he was unable to do that. It raises serious questions about Kavanaugh's wisdom and understanding of the Bill of Rights, the United States Constitution, the way the law is applied in this country, and it even raises questions about whether or not he's got a basic political IQ. This is easy, low-hanging fruit. It would have been, if nothing else, a great cynical maneuver to get in front of it and to put himself on the side of the right in this situation. I don't mean the political right. I mean doing what is correct and honorable. This guy is expecting to get a job where we're going to be referring to him from time to time as the honorable Brett Kavanaugh. I don't think so. I've yet to see anything honorable in his reaction to this situation, and I've yet to hear any argument that I'm wrong about it. The sooner Brett Kavanaugh's nomination goes away, the better. This is not, of course, the first time since I got back from the Pride 48 trip to New Orleans that I've had some you know, dismissive online attacks come my way. And I'll just kind of share one more because I think it's a bit of a segue into the topic that uh, I chose to share online. And it's one of those rare occasions where I chose to share it in many different ways. I've got a lot of politically conservative friends on my personal Facebook page, for example, and I've got a wide variety of people who follow me on Twitter because I don't presume I can micromanage that. I don't have any litmus tests. I don't kick people out. If anything, having a dozen or dozens of people who have a very diff a different political worldview gives me an insight into what what is going on in the minds of the Trumpists, so to speak. I'm not blind to that because I get to see it on an almost daily basis. And along the way... I decided to share what was basically originally a Twitter post, I believe, by Gabrielle Blair, 
Many of us may have seen it. I'm not going to read through it, but I will point people in the direction of it. Uh, Gabrielle Blair on Twitter is at Design Mom. Her September 14th, 2018 post. I've got it in our moments that she created called Rethinking the Abortion Conversation. And I think her headline covers it pretty well. Think of abortion as the cure for the disease of unwanted pregnancy. What causes unwanted pregnancy? Irresponsible ejaculations. And she goes through in great detail, making what I consider to be a fairly compelling case that if you accept the argument that it takes two to tango, and if you don't accept the argument that it takes two to tango, then your understanding of science is so seriously deficient that perhaps you shouldn't be raising your voice in an argument about things like uh, birth control, pregnancy, wanted or unwanted, or abortion. You simply don't have the basic knowledge and skills to engage intelligently in conversation about it. But if it does take two to tango, it is quite clear that women can engage in a great variety of sexual activities without becoming pregnant, and that men can only engage in some of those activities without getting a woman pregnant, but the number one thing that gets a woman pregnant is irresponsible ejaculations. When you think about ovulation and fertility from that perspective, there may only be a couple of days in most cases in any given 28-day period when a woman is actually capable of becoming pregnant. It's the simple, you know, the way the human body works from a biological perspective. In terms of ovulation and the odds of implantation, all of that sort of, you know, well, the science stuff, right? Meaning that a woman is probably 80% of the time still going to reject the results of of an ejaculation that generates a pregnancy, meaning it doesn't make much sense to hold her accountable for the less than 20% of that formula, when irresponsible ejaculations is the male contribution to the problem 100% of the time. She goes through it in detail, well worth seeking out, rethinking the abortion conversation. And, of course, you post that on your uh, on your own personal Facebook page, and what you immediately get is somebody... Somebody from inside the Protestant Christian church just simply saying, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life, period, end of conversation. I mentioned this a couple of shows back. If I don't engage you in this situation, that's the ultimate act of disrespect. So somebody in my circle completely misunderstood what I was trying to say about the violence being done to Dr. Ford and said something, you know, totally mistaken, totally misguided, and got, you know, hundreds of words of correction. I value that person. That person is a part of my life. That's not going to change. This other guy, this ejaculation has no role to play in pregnancy guy, I, I don't respect him enough to even bother correcting him. I just let him look like a damn fool on my Facebook page. And... There is a common denominator here and that at some point I am going to stop engaging if I think that the conversation has just veered into the stupid or if it's veered into the avenue of ad hominem attack. And I'm quite sure that if, if I had tried to correct this you know, friend of mine from inside the broader body of Christ, it would have devolved into something really, really nasty, very ad hominem, very quickly. I simply left him to wallow in his ignorance. It is what it is. But... I mentioned this now, kind of veering past the Kavanaugh thing, just to talk, well, how do I interact online? What's my deal? How would I dare let somebody say something provocative and stupid and not challenge it, when in some cases I do? Well, I covered that. And then Gabrielle Blair's argument, which I think is well worth considering, that we don't do enough to hold men accountable, even medically accountable, as 
would be the case if you're forcing women to carry a term. There's, there certainly could be some sort of medical accountability for a man who creates an unwanted pregnancy through irresponsible ejaculation, through uh, lying, for example, or attempted rape, to tie back to the original topic today. And I think Blair gets it right enough that it's worth talking about. To me, what it brings up is this whole thing in the context of contraception. We're looking at the short list of people, and, and Kavanaugh in particular, people who do not have the scientific wisdom, as judges, why should they, to necessarily understand what contraception even is and what it does. And therefore, this notion, this extreme right-wing notion, that all contraception is abortion, which you hear from time to time, or even in the case of Kavanaugh, some slash many forms are, you're going to end up in a case where you end up with more and more unwanted pregnancy generated, in some cases, by men engaging in relationships with women where there is no desire to maintain a responsible relationship for the entire upbringing of the child that results from the pregnancy. That problem. You go back to David Mace a few a few episodes back, uh, who I cited actually as a different drummer in the very first year of Inappropriate Conversations, that there is no real Wild West here when it comes to sexual ethics. The sexual revolution, rightly understood, was still never going to get us past the point where there weren't going to be some basic rules of engagement. Don't exploit people. Don't lie to them, for example, for the sake of your own sexual gratification. Take responsibility for the children that, or the fetuses or the embryos that come from that union. Be responsible for your ejaculations, I guess would be the way that Gabriel Blair would, would word it, and rightly so. And then finally, don't go out of your way to intentionally inflame a reaction to you know what might generally be described as minimum forms of decency. That there there is a level where it does make sense that some things belong in the bedroom and some things are okay uh, on a park bench. And understand what those kind of differences are. So if you look at it from the perspective of birth control, we are only in a place where we have the birth control we have today. I'm referring specifically to the pill, but it applies more broadly. Because of individuals taking action where they invested not just their time and their talent, but their wealth, and at times even a risk to their freedom to step into an issue where the larger society was not going to do it, where there just wasn't any motivation at the university level for research that might lead to the kind of contraceptive options that we have today. It wasn't going to happen on its own, in other words. So there's there's that aspect. The church has obviously been extremely controversial on this front, and it's fair to say the church was never going to take action, although it is also fair to say that in the, especially in the 60s and 70s, I can't speak with that much authority of the period before I was born, but at least in the 60s and 70s, the Protestant church that I was interacting with was by and large pro-birth control. And so where did this come from? If the church isn't going to do it, if the government is more likely to try to outlaw independent research than support it or lead it, it came from extremely wealthy people who were highly motivated, with a strong desire to leave the world a better place than it was when they got here, taking action. What we might call wealth in action. And I've got to decide, well, do I want to call this episode Paying It Forward, as I did in the intro, or do I want to call it wealth in action or wealth in activism or something else? That's a legitimate question I may have. This could be one of the inappropriate conversation shows where the recorded intro doesn't actually uh, match the title. 
We're seeing some of this happen, right? You've got guys like Jeff Bezos, the ridiculously wealthy owner of Amazon, or Elon Musk, or other folks, who are looking at the stockpile of funds that they've created and trying to decide what on earth what on earth they could and should be doing with it. I give Bezos a little bit of credit for being somewhat transparent about the fact that he now has more money than he could ever possibly spend on himself, no matter what he decided to do for his own pleasure or leisure. He could, of course, pour an overwhelming amount of his own personal holdings back into his business. But even then, there's uh, there's some sort of diminishing return that's going to come from that. And he originally floated ideas like trying to create a resort on Mars or something ridiculous like that. Something overwhelmingly expensive with relatively little or even narrowly focused benefit to him and him alone. We've seen We've seen some of that. And this matters for a couple of reasons. First... If we go back to that period in the mid to late 1960s and shortly after that, say a period from 1960 through 1976, that ballpark, you basically had a very lot, a lot of you know, business owners, entrepreneurs, captains of industry who were making 50 times more than the average person working for them and probably hundreds of times more than the lowest paid person working for them. This doesn't inherently offend me. I've said before, I'm a political moderate. It doesn't feel that way that often these days because of how extreme the right wing has become. But when the right wing was closer to a circle of moderation, I was kind of smack dab in the middle. I didn't move. They moved. But the fact of the matter is, I'm not anti-capitalist. I don't have, I don't have an ism. In other words, I'm not so obsessed or afraid of socialism or communism that I'm going to make a bad decision. I'm not so anti-capitalistic that I don't believe that somebody who takes the greatest risk should get the greatest reward. I'm not looking for a world where everybody is paid exactly the same for doing almost exactly nothing. That's not what I'm looking for. But I do believe that there's something inherently wrong with that number going from 50 to 1 is the ratio, from the highest made paid member of an organization to the average in the you know, 1960s, early 70s, to suddenly being thousands to one now, uh, that that incremental increase in that gap has led to situations where we as a country have people who are not just billionaires among us, but multi-billionaires among us, running organizations where the people who are working for them can't afford to put food on the table, can't afford to save money for their kids' education. The amount of money it takes for one semester of that would have covered my entire college career and probably graduate school. That the cost of getting an education has gone up exponentially. The cost of medical care has gone up exponentially. We could argue that the quality has gone up too. At the very least, the options has, have gone up, have grown exponentially. But at the same time that you've seen that explosive growth in those areas, you've seen a, an amazing, disgusting, frankly, amount of stagnation in the wages of the average earner. If you take out the explosive rise of the, the wage earning at one end of the spectrum, that entrepreneurial end of the spectrum, if you take that out, an argument could be made that wages are actually dead flat to where they've been my entire lifetime, that what's left in the, in the job pool is making that much less. And that's perhaps a different topic for a different day. I've dealt with it for all the years of inappropriate conversations from time to time, just sort of peeking in and making a reminder about that, that we can't act like we have the same world we did in the 1960s 
because our tax code's not the same as it was. Our expectations of corporate wealth and the usage of that is not the same. Just even the notion of corporations being people is not the same. That wasn't a controversial view in 1968 because it wasn't a view at all in 1968. So you've got that problem, and I've dealt with that in previous inappropriate conversations. But let me go from there to address it in a slightly different way. What do you do with that wealth? Because first off, we've got this inequality, and um, the math I've been talking about makes it look extreme. But there have been posts lately that I think have helped people understand what the actual amount of a billion is. That how is a billion different from a million, different from a thousand? And when you're talking about multi-millionaires, you have the ability to do a tremendous amount of good with the discretionary income you've got. You place no risk on what happens to your family in the midst of a catastrophic health situation. If you were a hundreds of millionaire and you spend a lot of that money on something that either is going to make you personally satisfied or, or put your name on a sports stadium or a library or a building that you could spend that money and still be safe. You're still putting your kids through college. You got nothing to worry about. Not to mention the fact that for a lot of these folks who are in this sort of celebrity wealth category, a lot of the things that most people are scraping by to try to pay for, those folks sometimes just get them for free anyway. Because there's a, there's a name recognition. There's a cachet to being associated with somebody who has accumulated that much wealth. So there's that problem. Just first, how big is a billion dollars? How big is multiple billions of dollars? And Bezos is not describing his quote-unquote problem wrong when he says there is no recreational activity. There is no family building activity. It's going to help him spend that money. That money is not going to spend itself. And that's the problem. So Bezos did come away with a thought of maybe he could come up with an initiative that would make schools better. Um, a positive, a more positive example I would would think of would be LeBron James using his accumulated wealth in a very targeted and, and long-range thinking kind of a way. Uh, what James is attempting to do in inner cities is going to make a difference for an entire generation, perhaps generations beyond that. And, of course, in the case of Bezos, you're adding a zero to the value of the net worth of what James can do versus what Bezos can do. So you've got this notion of, okay, can great things be done by extremely wealthy people engaging in very specific activities or even activism? Not only is the answer to that question yes, I'm going to say that in some ways it can only be done in that manner. So to explain this better, I want to make a reference to a no long-forgotten 1970s television series and our different drummer, our long-waiting different drummer, Catherine McCormick. But first, let me set the stage for Forgotten TV, Forgotten TV in the 70s, and why some of these ideas have come to me in such a way that I feel like I can't wait any longer than I already have to bring them up. In 1972, American TV networks canceled 12 TV shows for crimes they didn't commit. These shows were promptly forgotten by the public and faded into obscurity. Today, Chris Cooling researches these shows for a podcast. If there's a TV show that no one else remembers, and if you have earbuds, maybe you can listen to Forgotten TV. The year is 1972. Robert Vaughn had uh, finished his run from 1964 to 1968 in The Man from Uncle as a poet Napoleon Solo. Bouncing around in several films and relatively small roles along the way, he got the opportunity to star as the lead in another television series dealing with 
um, spies and crime and, and uh, adventure called The Protectors. The Protectors ran for those three seasons featuring Vaughn as Harry Rule. And I'll jump to the IMDb page to let IMDb describe this series a little bit better. But as I go through it, one of the thoughts in my mind is the impact of wealth on the show. That the two amazing things about this particular program, and over the years I've almost incidentally collected at least two of the three, if not all three seasons of the show on DVD. One came to me kind of from the side as a part of a 10-disc set of spy TV spy dramas from this era. And one of them I got kind of at a garage sale where the, like an entire season on DVD. I always remembered liking the show and liking it even as a kid seeing it when it was run for the first time. But the interesting thing was while Mission Impossible was an hour long, Man from Uncle I think was an hour long, this was a 30 minute show. So trying to pack the right amount of plot development and adventure into 30 minutes was always going to be a challenge and it was managed in some interesting ways. Here's what IMDb says about the plot of the television show, The Protectors. They were Harry Rule, the Contessa di Contini, and Paul Boucher, three freelance troubleshooters who ran an international crime-fighting agency. Based in London, Harry was the leader of the group. The Contessa lived in Italy, and when she wasn't working with Harry, ran her own detective agency that specialized in exposing art fraud and recovering stolen art. Paul Boucher worked out of Paris and was the group's researcher and gadget specialists. Their adventures range from simple kidnapping to convoluted cases involving international intrigue. Somewhere in between a show like Mission Impossible and a show like Search from the same period, uh, The Protectors sort of lived. And, and the one thing that jumps out at me about The Protectors that made it different was that this was a group of extremely wealthy people with a lot of resources, with a lot of time on their hands, with a lot of interests in fighting crime and um, foiling bad actors on the international stage, had chosen in the fictional plot of this series to do good with their time and to do good with their money. So perhaps from a very young age, influenced by shows like this, forgotten TV shows from the 1970s, I have always re rejected the argument, the sort of false dichotomy, either or, jump to conclusions kind of point of view that wealthy people are the bad guys and that the poor working class man is the good guys. I, it's, it's much more complicated than that because we have seen over the years tremendously important and impactful things being done by wealthy people with their resources that in some cases could not be accomplished in any other way. If we are on the national stage right now actually fighting for the very future of the birth control pill as we know it, and that's not exactly hyperbole, we could be looking at that among other things. And a country that is so intellectually incapable of having a conversation around the issue, so that when someone like Blair puts her post up on Twitter, uh, people are, apparently many people are confused, confounded, can't even understand what she means. What is she talking about? It makes no sense. We're not at all equipped to discuss the science behind birth control and to defend it. But my question for this particular show, this concept of people who have resources and choose to pay it forward, is about the actual creation of the pill in the first place. And to do that, you almost have to talk about Catherine McCormick, among other people. So 
So let me note what I'm not going to do in this Different Drummer segment and what I'm not going to do for the rest of the episode. I'm not going to talk about a lot of the people who were very instrumental in the creation of the pill. Uh, we won't be mentioning Gregory Goodwin Pincus, except perhaps in, in passing. This isn't an episode about Planned Parenthood and Margaret Sanger or any of those other folks. I'm not dismissing their contribution. In fact, their contribution is definitely and unmistakably central. What I want to do is focus on kind of a Jenga board question of this. If you think of the game Jenga, which plank do you take out to make the whole thing come tumbling down? And it's probably not an exaggeration to suggest that Catherine Dexter McCormick is actually a cornerstone here. Maybe even all the way up to the cornerstone. So who was she? And to what degree can we assign her perhaps selfish motives of leaving a legacy to results that are unmistakably historically impactful and, in my mind, unquestionably good? Catherine McCormick was born in 1875, died in 1967. She was a U.S. biologist, suffragist, philanthropist, and after her husband's death, heir to a substantial part of the McCormick family fortune. She funded most of the research necessary to develop the first birth control pill. And I find it a little bit disappointing that that's probably a relatively unknown fact. And I'm not pointing a finger anywhere else, I'm pointing it at myself as well. About five years ago, I heard uh, an NPR Fresh Air feature on this particular moment in history. It was looking at the pill more broadly, and a lot of the players involved, the doctor in particular, and some of the other research. But it didn't skip past this important point, that this funding wasn't going to come from the U.S. government, it wasn't coming from the church, it wasn't coming from universities. It could be assigned almost to one individual person. Now, McCormick is a familiar name, and uh, her maiden name, Dexter, also uh, coming from a family of wealth. So this is um, resources that have been passed down through the generation. From a Chicago perspective, McCormick should be familiar if only because of buildings that are named that. Uh, the McCormick Center is one of the the few kind of convention center type places in the country big enough to hold events that are bigger than, say, a National Retail Federation conference. The first time I think I stepped foot in that building was for an, for an NRF conference. So something big enough to host that. So the entrepreneurial funds, the the uh, the contributions, the charitable donations of McCormick's have been used in the past in very traditional ways to try to leave a legacy behind that you can see in the form of a name on a building. And that is probably how her husband's side of the family truly and genuinely operated. McCormick was always just a little bit different, not least for the fact that, um, well, she has a degree in biology from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which she earned in 1904. And if you had told me in 1904 was MIT a male-only institution, and I had said yes, I don't think you could fault me for guessing wrong foolishly. She not only was one of the relatively few at the time female graduates from that university, with a degree directly relevant to the work she would later pass on as a legacy, but the reality is her activism over the years included making sure that women were allowed in that institution after she graduated, that there was a place that would make them, give them an environment where they could thrive because it was necessary to create a space for women at a point in American history, early 20th century, where there really wasn't that much of a place for women in some of these, you know, pillar universities of advanced education. 
McCormick had a lot to do with that. So anyone who reviews more of her Wikipedia page that I'm going to refer to is going to find specific mentions to lots of other things. Political activism related to getting women the right to vote, uh, trying to guarantee a spot for women at her alma mater in MIT, and taking great pride in the fact that you know, we're now at a point where that's pretty much a 50-50 gender divide in some of those high science disciplines like engineering, and that had a lot to do with her work. But her specialty was biology. So she actually did you know, kind of have a pretty good idea of what she was talking about when she was interacting with folks and trying to create a safe method of birth control for women. The Wikipedia page says this under the, the heading of philanthropist. McCormick's husband first just was, um, was schizophrenic and struggled with the disease and eventually had to be institutionalized. And this uh, section picks up with that kind of as an assumption. Inspired by her husband's diagnosis, Catherine was determined to find a cure, believing that Stanley's illness was a defective adrenal gland and could be treated with hormonal treatment. She established a research foundation from 1927 to 1947 at Harvard Medical School and subsidized the publication of the journal Endocrinology specifically to try to find ways that this kind of treatment could be developed. It was originally called the Stanley R. McCormick Memorial Foundation for the Neuroendocrine Research Corporation, and it was the first U.S. institute to launch research on the link between endocrinology and mental illness. In addition, Catherine also created a research center for the care of the mentally ill at Worcester State Hospital. Her mother, Josephine, died in 1937, leaving Catherine an estate of more than $10 million, and her husband died in 1947, leaving an estate of over $35 million. She spent five years kind of dealing with the estate, settling things, paying very high inheritance taxes, but still having a tremendous amount of resources left over. That even if 85% of her money went to settling the estate and paying taxes and so forth and so on, she still had millions of dollars left over. And we're not even talking about the billions that I would refer to if you look at the people in the news today with names like Musk and Bezos. In 1953, McCormick met Gregory Goodwin Pincus through Margaret Sanger. Pincus had been working on developing a hormonal birth control method since 1951 and his own research laboratory, the Worcester Foundation for Experimental Biology. The drug company that supported Pincus had stopped funding his research because he had yet to make a profit. As a result, Catherine started to fund Pincus's research foundation with donations that started off at 100000 annually and later to up to 180000 all the way through to her death in 1967. To sum it up, McCormick had provided almost an entire $2 million, $23 million in today's money, of her own money, into the development of a contraceptive pill. The FDA approved the sale of the pill in 1957 for menstrual disorders and added contraception to its indications in 1960. Even after the pill was approved, she continued to fund his lab and research on ways of improving birth control research all the way through the 1960s. So, a variety of interests and a variety of contributions, but I dare say the thing that she did most with her money that's had the greatest impact on our society today was answering the question of how do we pay for the research needed to generate hormonal birth control. That hormonal birth control is even controversial today is a great disappointment to me. Many of the things which have been said about it by companies like Hobby Lobby and potential Supreme Court justices like Brett Kavanaugh 
are so laughably false that it begs the question of whether or not someone who got her degree from MIT more than 100 years ago had more wisdom in 1967 than these men have had since then. From 1967 to today, the information age has created such an explosion of knowledge, such a mathematical exponential growth in information, that for someone to remain that ignorant that long over this period of time is a really stunning disappointment. More importantly, though, I think that there is value in us looking at people who have accumulated tremendous wealth, perhaps through inheritance in the case of McCormick, or from you know entrepreneurial means in the case of Bezos, and asking the question, that's fine, but what are you going to do with it? If what you're going to do with it is build a school and put your name on it, okay, there's value in that. If what you're going to do instead, like LeBron James, is try to establish a foundation to provide incentive and support for underprivileged kids that could lead them all the way to a funded college education and change the dynamic in inner cities for decades, if not generations to come, well, that's better. I also think that through one singularly narrow focus, our different drummer this week, Catherine McCormick, made a change in the lives of women and improved the lives of American families and families around the world ever since. She had a vision, she had determination, and she had resources. Having resources isn't inherently a problem. The problem is, what do you choose to do with those resources? What do you choose to do with those resources? Do you fight crime like the protectors? Do you come up with an exponential leap forward in medicine, as McCormick did through hormonal birth control? Or at the very least, do you simply say, hey, I've been given the privilege of being put in a position to even be considered for a spot in the U.S. Supreme Court? That means that the very least I can do is use my voice to make sure that even someone I perceive to be my enemy is treated with the grace and dignity of Jesus Christ himself. And that's what Jesus taught us to do. Someone's going to have to explain to me what the vast majority of right-wing American Christianity thinks they're doing in the name of Jesus by either silently allowing violence against Dr. Ford to happen or encouraging the violence against Dr. Ford to happen or at the very least not looking at the man they perceive to be defending with some scorn in their voice and saying, what the hell is your problem, man? You've got an opportunity to win the hearts and minds of a lot of people in America who do not believe you're a worthy candidate for this job. And all you have to do is say, knock this crap off. I would rather withdraw my nomination to the Supreme Court than see an individual citizen of this country, even a citizen with whom I have a great deal of disagreement, even a citizen with whom I might have a great deal of personal animosity, I would rather not be considered for a job on the Supreme Court than sit by and allow that kind of violence to be directed toward a U.S. citizen. Somebody who can't make that claim, somebody who isn't big enough to make that claim, has no spot, not just in the highest levels of our judiciary, but at any level of our judiciary. That's someone who can't put his money where his mouth is. And that's the topic for this inappropriate conversation. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. Comments are enabled at the website where shows are posted, inappropriateconversations.org. 
And I've already mentioned other social media contacts on Facebook and Twitter. One other thing is SoundCloud. Those who are coming to the show new and interested in what has come before, there is a shortcut, soundcloud.com, where I'm IC underscore Greg there, has smaller audio clips of past shows. I've gotten about halfway through the back catalog, working in chronological order. I still got a ways to go. Thanks for listening. Music by Kevin McLeod.
This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.